So I'm sitting on the plane and it's been taken over by terrorists, okay? Wow. Yeah, and it's a fairly nerve-wracking thing, but I'm trying to keep my spirits up as this guy in a balaclava waving a pistol around is walking down the aisle checking on all of us. I don't know what he was checking on that we were doing. But as he walked up to me, I went, just, just play it light, be funny, just be yeah. funny. And I said, hey, mate, I know I ordered the kosher meal. I was just kidding. And that's when he pistol whipped me with his 9mm. Ouch. Yeah, it really hurt. Yeah, I bet. Welcome to iSpied, the podcast that is the economy legroom on a flight to Bali. When I travel hijacked air, I like to go business. All the way. Hello and welcome to iSpied. My name is Michelle Stevenson. I'm a journalist with Nova Entertainment and I'm here with David Callan. Hello. All round former spy and I'd like to say nice guy, but I don't know, are you? Uh, yeah. I don't I feel like I know you that well. Happily married, 22 years. <laughs> Is this a hostage situation? Well, it could be. <laughs> I feel like I'm suffering from Stockholm Syndrome already. Oh, or maybe she is. No, well, you know, um, I've been married for 22 years, happily married for three. Oh, God, how long have we been waiting for you to bring that line out? Um, welcome to I Spied. Things that we have touched on in previous eps. Mm -hmm. Look, what does your file say? We yeah. kind of went into that area, which, of, of course, now I now have a file, right? You would definitely have one by now. <laughs> Security, surveillance protocol, yes. all these kind of things. But what we're going to talk about today is counterterrorism. Counterterrorism. And of course, the time I experienced it firsthand. So, so let's go back to the beginning then. Right. Okay. There was an announcement by the then Hawke government that everybody would get at least 5% of their wages worth of training every year. Uh, and at ASIO, I hadn't done any training. 5% of your wages? Yeah. Like they'd spend the equivalent of 5% of your wages on training. So they'd, take, they'd, they'd spend an extra 5% to train you. Okay. And I'd done some training with ASIO, but not a lot. Uh, and I'd actually gone down to the training section and went, oh, I'm not happy about this. I'm not getting training. Yeah. So, I mean, like what kind of training would you expect, I guess? Well, you know, basic intelligence course, operational intelligence course. But they went, we've got just the thing for you. We want you to help out with an exercise. It'll be a bit of training. And I thought, that's great. And they went, we want you to work on a counter-terrorist exercise. Amazing. Yeah, which I thought, this is going to be great. I'm ready for this. I'm ready to, you know, don the battle jacket and right. put a pistol in a pocket and all that sort of stuff. And when you were doing this too, yes. we've we got to remember the times. This is back when if you took a hostage, you like on a plane particularly, they were taking hostages and that those hostages were collateral. Right. Not like now where basically you're excess baggage on a cruise missile. So this is pre-September pre 11. 11. Yeah, yeah, yeah. pre-9-11. So what happens is they said, we want you to work on this exercise. We've got the perfect job for you. You're the hostage. Great. Yeah. So I was one of several hostages on this plane. Now, because I'd been doing theatre at the time, yeah. I thought, you know, I'll treat it as like an acting workshop as well. Ooh, I'm just, of course you did. <laughs> I'm doubling down on my training. I'm getting ASIO training and acting training. So I went, come up with a character. Think of your character. And I just thought, you know what? There's always a wise cracking hostage in these things, isn't there? That guy who's always got a quick wit and a quick line that sort of disarms the terrorists. All of a sudden, you're an 80s movie. Oh, yeah, totally. I was just John McClaney it everywhere. <laughs> yeah, right. Anyway, we wind up on the plane. We're sitting there. Now, we were told, just have a concept that the plane is in flight, mm. that we never flew. But, you know, the plane is in flight. These guys are going to take over the plane. Then the plane is going to land. I don't know why I did air quotes because <laughs> no one can see that. Yeah, the plane was going to land in theory. And then we were going to go into what is the face-off between counterterrorism and the terrorists. Right. Now, the terrorists are generally played by another counterterrorist squad. 
it makes sense when you think about it. You want to put your guys up against guys that know the playbook mm. because it forces you to adapt and it forces you to improvise and it forces you to improve. So is there a playbook? Yeah, there's definitely a playbook. Okay. Uh, well, there's several playbooks and several different groups have several different playbooks. So essentially we're sitting on the plane and, of course, these guys who are wearing balaclavas and, again, waving pistols around back in the time, the concept was they somehow smuggled them onto the plane. They start waving these pistols around and, you know, we're going to take this plane to Lithgow or whatever they were going to do. <laughs> Lithgow. Yeah, Lithgow. That's a fate worse than death. Lithgow, yeah. <laughs> the Republic of Lithgow. So essentially we all sat there and as, again, this guy's walking down the aisle, checking on us to make sure we're not up to any mischief. Like we've taken the the stirring stick from our cup of tea to like take the plane back. <laughs> and as he walked past, I dropped the line about, you know, I just ordered a kosher meal, but I was kidding. And then he pistol whipped me. Like, like full on pistol whipped. Gun to the back of the head, um, head rams into the seat in front of me. Oh my God. And I'm just sitting there going, oh, just this, whoa, 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 what the hell? And that's when the gun was shoved into my eye. Right, this guy pressed it right against my eyeball and, excuse the language, his lines, which I will never forget, were, shut the fuck up. I mean, I get, I bet you hear that constantly. I do a lot. <laughs> like I said, 22 years of marriage. Yeah. So, yeah, this guy basically shoved the pistol in my eye and said, if you don't shut up, I'll kill you. And that's when it went from being an exercise to being horribly real. Now, I was terrified I was seriously scared to the point where my bladder locked itself shut. <laughs> it just clamped shut. I'm like, <sighs> and there was no way I was going to ask to be taken to the bathroom because he would have killed me if I'd asked. And yeah. if I wet myself, he'd have killed me, brought me back to life and killed me again. I mean, these guys took their role very seriously. And counter-terrorist guys in counter-terrorism exercises, when they're playing the bad guy, they don't muck around. Well, they kind of have to take yeah, it seriously. they take it very seriously. It's got to be a really serious incident. So essentially, I sat there for about 18 hours on the plane with my bladder expanding beyond all design specifications. And then the next thing, the counter-terrorist team came in. It was time to take the plane back. There's smoke, there's blanks going off, there's gunfire, there's screams. The next thing, I've got two hands on my chest, I'm dragged out of my seat, and I'm like, this is it, I'm going to be put to death. But I was dragged out by one of the guys from the counter-terrorist group, and he threw me down the front stairs of the plane, I landed on the tarmac, I was picked up coughing and spluttering, because the smoke yeah. is so acrid, it's almost like tear gas, if it wasn't. They never said. We get dragged across the tarmac and I get sat in a tent and there was a, a, one of the psychologists from ASIO who just went, hi, how's it going? Right. Um, but what did you learn? What did I learn? Don't mess with counter-terror squads. They take their job extremely seriously. I know, but this is meant to be a training exercise for you and I don't know what it is you learned. Just how to be pistol whipped? <laughs> I think it was to <laughs> learn to keep my mouth shut. Right. I really seriously believe it. And look, best advice, if you're in one of those situations, keep your mouth shut. Shut up. Yeah. Honest to God. There's nothing you're going to say that's going to change these people's minds, particularly now where these terrorists are even more extreme. Yeah, and that's what I was going to ask. Like with counterterrorism, they would have had to have adapted to a new world, especially post 9-11. Very much so. The possibility and these lone wolf attacks. Mm. Like the terrorism is like a whole new world out there. Back in the day, in you know, sort of in the era when I was working for ASIO, they were picking the low-hanging fruit to go and do these things because generally they're not going to survive. But the classic was there was a I can't remember it was TWA one of the the big ones where they they basically blew up four planes because yeah. they were holding hand grenades with the pins taken out. So if anyone wrestled them, they just let go of the grenade. 
and they blow up right. the plane. Right. So it's gone from that to the point where it's like we're not expecting to live anyway. It's generally a suicide mission. But the other thing is we're taking everyone with us. Yeah. And that was the really important thing. I mean, and now with things like bomb vests on trains and buses, I mean, London, Madrid, those things are terrible. And there is no counter-terrorist exercise you can do to play with that. It's simply... It's a lone wolf. It's this guy who's yep. walked out there, or several people, several lone wolves, have walked out and basically gone, we're going to detonate ourselves in a public place and make its maximum casualty. And who would be responsible for that counterterrorism? Depends on where it is. Right. You see, um, you've got state, you'll have state-based groups within the police force and then you'll have um, federal-based groups within the AFP and more likely the army as well. And do they all talk to each other? Because, you know, we, we do often hear, especially post, you know, the Lint Cafe siege, which yes. we'll get into in a minute, you always have like these raids that are happening and are they talking, are the police talking to... The- <sighs> There'd be a lot of liaison. There'd yeah. be definitely a lot of liaison between the organisations, but there's also that th- th- it's quite territorial as well. Right. And also it's fascinating. I, I tell the story about hostage exercise in the, the show, but I also, I've spoken at several security conferences. I did a dinner for ICAC. Um, <laughs> that yeah, would have been fun. That was really interesting because... I had at least three people from tactical squads at the ICAC dinner go, oh, when did this happen? (laughs) Really? Yeah, and I'd say, oh, you know, back in 1990 uh, and gave them the details and they went, yeah, mate, that was me. Three (laughs) in one night, all claim responsibility. like, it can't be all of you. No, 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 no. Every single one. I looked at them and went, why? Oh, my God, yeah, it was you. Why'd they want to claim responsibility? Because it's the cool thing. I beat up the idiot. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, everyone wants to claim that. Everybody wants to claim the responsibility of beating me up. So the whole thing was, like, for me, it it really crystallised the level of commitment and also the level that these guys work to for the threat because there are good counter-terrorist squads and there are bad mm. ones. Now, I'm not talking about Australia. There was a hijack of a, an Air Egypt plane back in the 80s and it was it landed in Tunisia. The Tunisians were going to take care of it, but the Egyptians actually sent a commando squad over to go, no, 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 our plane, we'll take it back. And then they went and shot about 60 people trying to flee the plane after they tried to smoke it by setting off a charge at one end, yeah, right. which actually filled the plane with smoke and flame. So... Everybody ran off the plane, all the hostages ran off the plane and the Egyptians didn't know who was who, so they just started shooting everyone. Yeah, and I guess like, you know, now's a good time to kind of delve into the Lint Cafe, which you yeah. know, you and I have spoken about. I don't agree that this was a terrorist attack, but it was deemed a terrorism attack. I mean, we could get into the semantics about what is terrorism and what isn't. Well, to get to the real semantics of it, terrorism is regarded as politically motivated violence. Yes. And the thing with uh, the Lint Cafe was... I do not believe, despite the trappings that were put on it, I do not believe it was politically motivated. I think it was more a psychological break. 100%. Right. So that was the difference. The problem is it's terrorism. So instead of it being politically motivated terrorism, it's personally motivated terrorism. But you still got the problem of hostages in a situation like that. And and essentially he held the whole city of Sydney He held hostage. the whole city hostage, Like yeah. um, I was covering it at the time and I remember, you know, we were sh- they were shutting down the Opera House, the Harbour Bridge. Yeah. There were thoughts that there were bombs. He was working with other people. There were bombs elsewhere. They didn't know whether there were bombs. He was calling in 2GB, which was in my building, and so we were in kind were of tight. Down. We were locked down as well. There, there was a lot going on and not a lot of information. Exactly. I mean, the great example of it was the fact that his first demand was, I want 
want an ISIS flag because the flag I've got isn't an ISIS yeah, exactly. flag, but I want ISIS to be responsible. Yeah. To which ISIS. Now, this is a this is a group of people that will accept responsibility for, for everything, a, for everything. A fart in a bath, <laughs> and even they were like going, "Whoa, we want nothing to do <laughs> this with guy's this." Nuts. This guy's whoa. You know, we're nuts, but. This guy's nuts. Now, the terrible tragedy about it, and it's, as you said, to begin with, there was the idea that there were other bombers. There Mm. were other people involved. There was up to 80 hostages. There were multiple shooters. That's the biggest problem at the beginning of an incident is information. And the police really need the information quickly so they can actually set up a scenario and work out how they're going to address it. But the big problem is you get multiple feeds of information. People, you know, someone's saying, oh, I saw two guys wearing kefirs or there was a third bloke with a shotgun running down the street. And the police have to address everything that happens. Yes, which, which they did. And they did a really good job of it. But mm-hmm. who was in control of that day? That would have been New South Wales that would Police. Have, there was New South Wales but Police, right? But the federal side of it, I mean... Tony Abbott was Prime Minister at the time and he was very quick to make it a terrorist incident, to name it as a terrorist incident. Now, for right or wrong, that really is, that's for history to decide. But that immediately allowed federal forces to come involved. So you had AFP would have been involved. ASIO certainly would have been involved. They had knowledge of Manmanus before. It would have brought in a lot of different areas and departments. Then you've got the problem of jurisdiction. Who is actually in control of this? So those departments come in once it's been labelled terrorism? Pretty much, yeah. Right, okay. Because I I know from um, my work as a journalist, Mm. uh, there. Following that, there was a few more incidents like the Burke Street tragedy and all of this kind of stuff. And, you know, there was a real push to not label it terrorism right away. Yes. Wait for the facts just because there is – there's also a lot of other mitigating circumstances that we're not fully across. Mm. And then the police also want to keep the upper hand in some things. Yes. The police don't want to give out too much information because that could put other people's lives at risk. Exactly. Now, I had um, met up with Victorian police with a few other media organisations to discuss kind of counterterrorism, and they were like an open book. They are like, what do you want from us? We will give you as much information when we have it because this was following a string of incidents in Melbourne. Mm. And they ran through different scenarios and showed us why they're not always giving us the best information at the time. And there are some very real scenarios going on that we're not fully aware of and we shouldn't be aware of them because we need them to do their job. It's called the need to know principle. Exactly. If you don't need to know, we won't tell you. Now, the problem is, uh, particularly with journalists, they want to know. And so do we. I mean, the general public really want to know what's going on. The problem being, sometimes we can't tell you what's going on simply because you don't need to know yet. Correct. And like when I listen back to some of my news reports from that day from the Link Cafe Siege, I was doing rolling coverage Mm. and we were updating every 15 minutes and we're giving the information as it was coming to hand. But some of that information, I listen back now and I go, that is completely so incorrect. Like it wasn't even close. But that was what we were getting from police and from sources and from people who were on the ground. But that's the thing about all of these incidents is they're rolling incidents and yeah. you work on what you know at the time. The classic with 9-11 was at one point there were meant to be 11 or 12 oh, planes. Yes. The Sears Tower was meant to be taken out in Chicago. Something had crashed into Hollywood. There were all, the, I think the Hollywood sign was supposedly hit by a plane. It's, wow, that's a really low-grade target. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> seriously. <laughs> That's very easy. I'm ruining fixed. Hollywood for everyone. <laughs> I'm ruin it for everyone. So no let's one just, gets a selfie. <laughs> all it is is wood. Um, <laughs> so that whole thing of information is fluid. Yeah. And 
in situations like a terrorist incident, the information flows very quickly and changes very quickly. And that's for a journalist like yourself, for a curious witness or the police themselves, everything changes. It's a fluid, dynamic environment and it takes time to get to the point where you can act properly. Yeah, especially in a lot of these circumstances, you know, we're giving out information, telling people to avoid certain areas. With the Link Cafe yeah. siege, we were, we were basically, they shut down the whole of the CBD. Yeah. Everyone was told to go home, which, you know, that's unprecedented stuff. And I think, I wonder, and what, what are your thoughts on this, whether now that would be approached differently? I don't think it would be approached that differently. Again, because it's a dynamic environment, mm. you want to get people away from it, right? I think they shut down the trains. They did. So they everyone shut down had ferries, to, trains. Yeah, everyone had to walk out of the city and then make their own way home however they could. The whole idea of terrorism is it's a disruptive act. Mm. So in that sense, yes, what happened with Manmanus was an act of terrorism because it completely disrupted an entire city, right? But no, I wouldn't change it. You'd still, there is a man with a gun. Yep. And you need to clear the space so the people that are going to either defuse it or, as it happened with this, and tragically so, are going to finish the incident with force. Either way, you need to clear the area. You can't have people around. You've just got to get them out of the space. Is there, like we saw the New South Wales police were in charge of that yep. scenario. Is there a moment where there was a thought process that maybe that needed to change? So someone else should have been leading the charge. Again, that's something for history to determine. Right. Is, that, is that a federal – like how, how do these would have, decisions get made? Yeah, I, I think it would have been made of the fact that literally the police commissioner would have turned around and gone, this is in New South Wales, right. this is a New South Wales incident, we will take care of it. Uh, and that is one of the things is there is a certain amount of – it's not deleterious, but there is rivalry between those groups, between counter-terrorist organisations. There is also a lot of sharing. They do work with each other. They do work opposite each other in exercises. That way you up your game. Mm. But with the whole thing with, with any terrorist incident is, as I said, it's dynamic and it can change on a heartbeat. And the person who's in the position at the time to take action, that's the person who's got to take the action. You don't have time to go, well, let's wait for 20 more minutes and maybe hopefully fly someone in from WA or fly someone in from Canberra. Sometimes it might be we need to go and we need to go now. And that can always wind up with things. I believe that there, there was a there might have been a problem with ammunition that was used with the group that mm. went in. All those sort of incidents, It's you can't control it. It's an uncontrolled environment. Yes, and I guess what that kind of really did for Australia, it set the tone for um, things to come and, yeah. and showed, similar to a pandemic, what we need to be aware of and what we're not aware of. Yes, because the thing is, these incidents happen out of the blue. I mean, there was a terrible incident with the um, Parramatta police staff yeah. getting shot because a boy had been radicalised online mm. and took a gun and just went, someone's coming out of the Parramatta police building, I'm going to shoot him. And the guy wasn't a police officer. I believe he was just, I think he worked in the finance yeah, department Yeah, he worked, yeah. But, you know, this is a victim. No one could predict that. What's ASIO's task now, I guess, with terrorism? Because stuff like that, radicalisation, yep. online, that's that's got to be where they're fighting the fight. That's where it starts. Yeah. But it is. It detect, it's detect and diffuse. Mm. It's stop it before it happens. And that, that's the most important thing. If you can get in front of the ball, if you can get in front of the incident before it occurs. So, I mean, we've had all of these raids, people being raided, because essentially their online presence has been so high and so obvious that they've stepped across the line and it's ASIO and now turned around and going, you're planning an incident, we're going to stop it, 
right, we're going to come in, we're going to arrest you, we're going to search the house, we're going to take you, we're going to, we're going to interrogate you, and we're going to find out what's really going on. But again, it comes down to how do we detect not, the, the, not just the radicalised person, who is doing the radicalisation? And that's the really difficult part. Yeah, I would imagine. So who would be following that? Is that ASIO looking at like where that radicalisation is coming from? I mean, it's coming from overseas, obviously. I guess, how would you even trace that? That's why we've got this massive cybersecurity thing going on now. It's all online. See, back when I was working for ASIO, we didn't have any of this. The internet didn't exist, right? So I mean, it existed, but well, like... <laughs> yeah, it existed if you wanted to go... <laughs> God, remember when you had to do... Or Commodore 64s so where you oh. had to like type in a whole bunch of jargon just yeah. to play Pong? Or you had to code <laughs> I um, know. just to play Pong. I had to be a coder just to turn my computer on. Oh, it was terrible. So that wasn't around, that... Easy access. So radicalization was more local. Mm. So it might be happening in, uh, I mean, for right-wing radicalization, for left-wing radicalization, for religious radicalization, it happens on-premises. Whereas now, all you need is an iPhone and, I don't know, a Zoom account, and away you go. Yeah, it's all all very interesting, isn't it? So talk to me a bit more about all the different counterterrorism agencies. So... ASIO has one. ASIO has one. Yeah. Well, they have a, a section that looks yep. after politically motivated right. violence, right? That's, uh, that's what they call it, politically yeah. motivated that's violence. That's what we call it, Great. politically motivated violence. That's, you know, terrorism is an aspect of politically right. motivated violence. Because here's the thing, people forget there's state-sanctioned terrorism. Not by us. Not by us. But a great example was the Lockerbie bombing. That's been yep. traced back to Libya, and oh, yes. The, How was this again? Oh, the forensic report was amazing. It was yeah. a brilliant read. The forensic pathologist actually, I think he blew up 10 old jumbos to work out where the bomb was situated on the plane. Because wow. the whole idea was the bomb in the Lockerbie bombing was meant to go off when it was over the North Sea. They were mm. never meant to find the plane. It was just meant to disintegrate in mm. the air and all evidence was destroyed. But because it was delayed leaving Frankfurt, it detonated over Scotland. Now, what they did is they first worked out where it was on the plane. They worked out it was on a cargo pallet. So they then went through the cargo pallet and worked out where it was on the cargo pallet, then looked at the manifest and also looked at the evidence. The evidence was it where the bomb was placed in a boombox. Remember the old cassette player, yeah, yep, yep. stereo boombox? It was in a boombox. On the outside of the boombox, there was cloth fused to the plastic casing of the boombox mm. from the heat of the explosion. They were able to take the cloth and analyse it and found it was like a thousand thread count cotton that was used by a shirt maker in Cyprus. Isn't that insane? They went to Cyprus and asked the shirt maker, did anybody buy a blue, like a set of blue business shirts Mm. in the last six months? Guy went, here's my ledger. There it was. And the guy had actually used his own name. He was a Libyan intelligence officer. Oh, my gosh. Right. But, and he actually got released. He had cancer. So mm. he was, again, air quotes. What am I doing? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no one can see them. No one can see them. Azio can. He's air quoting again. What's he saying? So what happened was the Libyan officer was arrested, convicted, imprisoned, and then released because he was diagnosed with cancer, went back to Libya, had a huge party. I'm not sure if he's dead yet, but the thing was... Libya were just acting on a client state. They were actually Mm. uh, doing the bidding of supposedly, allegedly it was Iran in uh, retaliation to the downing of an Iranian airliner by the USS Vincennes. See, now, and this is where we get back into that blowback. Yeah. Chalmers' book about, you know, 
a lot of these things, September 11th is purportedly, you know, blowback from the Clinton administration bombing a Sudanese pharmaceutical company. Well, it actually goes back further. Yeah. Because Osama bin Laden was basically tasked by the CIA to go to Afghanistan and clear it out, help clear it out, help get the Russians out. So he was working with the Mujahideen. And then when Saddam Hussein went into Kuwait, Osama bin Laden turned around to the CIA and went, look, I can put together two divisions of men. I can clean them out. You don't have to touch this. (laughs) Little did they know what he could actually put together. (laughs) What he could put together. And what happened was the CIA went, no, 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 this is our chance to actually put boots on the ground in, in the Middle East. So they moved into the Holy Land. Now, the one thing that Osama bin Laden didn't want was US troops in Saudi Arabia. So what was an asset then became a legitimate target. And look, I think we could spend a whole ep talking about Osama bin Laden. I think we should. Yes, because it's it's very interesting stuff, Mm. and especially off the back of, you know, what the CIA wanted him to do and, you know, the September 11th. Mm. So we'll talk about that another time. Yes, please. Counterterrorism, yep. done and dusted? Pretty much. I mean, there's more stuff we can talk about, but right now I think that's a nice primer to get you started. Okay. All right, so next week we're going to talk about how a briefcase almost brought an ASIO building undone. It shut us down for an afternoon. I can't wait to hear that story. Oh, that's great. I mean, what kind of briefcase? A uh, very, like, basic Samsonite, actually. Oh, of course. Yeah, but it was a very threatening one. <laughs> Had to be. Had a knife. And don't forget, you can subscribe, like, and comment. We want to hear everything that you have to say. And please just even just buy a T-shirt. Oh, or a stubby holder. We got T-shirts and stubby holders? I don't think we do. Let's get them. Okay.